Micro-credentials are all the rage in the world of education right now. But what exactly are they? And do they deserve all the fuss created around them? And who benefits from acquiring them? With the European Year of Skills in full swing, how can we make micro-credentials work for as many as possible? Welcome to Sedefop's Skill Set and Match podcast. I'm Panos Polizoidis, and with me to discuss micro-credentials are Paul Granger, an honorary research associate at University College London, and Sedefop expert Anastasia Pouliou, who coordinates the agency's relevant project. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Hello, it's very pleasant to be here. Hello, Panos. Thank you very much. Let's start with the basics. Do we have a clear definition of micro-credentials or is there still any uncertainty around? There are different terms that are currently being used, for example, micro-certifications, micro-qualifications, badges, partial or even supplementary qualifications are quite often, let's say, linked to this idea of micro-credentials. So in essence, uh, well, the definition is still there in, uh, at a European level, but countries are a bit trying to find their way, trying to see what works best in their context. Of course, uh, we need to consider that micro-credentials as a phenomenon is not new. Although they have, let's say, proliferated across European countries quite a lot, it's only recently that that they have gained this EU-wide attention in policy debates. However, we should not forget that they are not an effort to reinvent the wheel. They are a tool that is rather opening doors and offers new possibilities. Paul, would you say that micro-credentials are more prevalent when we talk about specific job-related skills or also general uh, transversal skills? I would resist the notion of a tight definition of micro-credentials because once you put it in a box, it loses its flexibility. And I think Anastasia is quite right that we've seen a a surge in the number of micro-credentials recently. And I put that down to COVID because COVID had a major impact on economies, not just in Europe, but around the world. Um, And people turned to micro-credentials as a way of reskilling people in a hurry. So certain industries were downsized, for example, catering, um, and other industries were um, dramatically needed particularly in data and particularly in what we're doing at the moment which is you know having a a, a remote conference all of that accelerated and there are people who had high levels of skill let's say in retail who needed to transfer into some sort of data process micro credentials were a very good way of doing that because they are designed by industry they're employment focused And I think part of the joy of micro-credentials is their informality. They're very regional, they're very local, they depend on local reputations. Uh, And it's a good word, uh, it's a good concept, but as soon as you start saying it's worth 23 and a half units, you've killed it. Now, let's try and trace the added value that they bring for learners and employers for the labor market in general, Paul. What is it micro-credentials do that the economy and the world of work would not have otherwise? Is it a, a new learning offer or is it a new way of transferring knowledge? Well, 
what it does is it enables you to work and um, the, the micro-credential has to be recognised by the employer uh, and you have to navigate very carefully around licence to practice type of work. So, for example, micro-credentials in airline pilots wouldn't be a good idea because you might miss out the landing bit. So they don't replace formal qualifications, but what they do is enable somebody to pick up the skills very rapidly that they need to function in a particular job. And that's why I say they're regional, because it's about people entering the workplace. And um, we know in Europe that there is an issue of people who are prepared to work, fit to work, but are not in employment because their skills don't match the skills that are needed in, in that local work environment. So it's very much that they're work related. There's been massive talk about the need to upskill and reskill and continuously upskill and reskill in uh, recent years. So how does this, can we call it an institution or anyway, the idea of micro-credentials fit into that? Micro-credentials are very linked to, to all these discussions about upskilling and reskilling. And this is actually the case not only for young learners, but also for adults. And we see that this is happening because micro-credentials are a, a way to, let's say, give visibility and value to shorter learning courses and in essence to shorter learning experiences. So in essence, they are an evidence of practical, flexible and on-demand and short learning experience. So they open a possibility to people, to learners, to accumulate, to stack, let's say, different competencies they, ha they have acquired, which can be very well documented and recognized by different people, by learning providers, by employers, by sectors. So what you said, like this idea of upskilling and reskilling is very important. Can one assume, Anastasia, that they are valued by the labor market in unequivocal terms? In CEDEFOP, we did a very important research and the findings of this research showed us that there is a feeling of urgency, let's say, about addressing skills needs in emerging sectors of the economy in which qualifications per se have not been formalized or are not, let's say, available due to the narrow and specific skills that are in essence required in order to perform well in the labor market. So in that sense, I think, yes, there is a value in the labor market context because they in essence offer a unique opportunity to acquire these skills and competencies that are not yet addressed by conventional diplomas and degrees and formal qualifications and they're also a way to enable access to employment especially in emerging uh, sectors like IT for example. Micro credentials respond to the changing needs of the labor market and they're quite often viewed as independent building blocks, I would say, in skill strategies that are responding to several drivers. I think Paul mentioned before uh, very well this uh, impact of COVID. Also, we see this immense, let's say, effect of digitalization, of this fast-changing labor market demands. But to what extent can micro-credentials, Paul, be part of uh, formal education systems, in your view? Uh, in my view, they can't. What, what they do is they encourage the formal education system to look again at its qualifications. And if I can disagree with Anastasia, which is a dangerous thing to do, I know, um, I don't think that micro-credentials are for young people. I think young people require formal qualifications which have credibility, not, not just in, in the home country, but around Europe, around the world, and they need the transferability that formal qualifications provide.
What micro-credentials do is provide a quick process for the retraining of the workforce as we go through periods of turbulence. And COVID was, was one example of, of turbulence. I think high inflation is going to give us another example of turbulence and, and the need for industry to respond quickly. Now, when a micro-credential has been designed and accepted and is acceptable to employees in a region, there is every possibility that that could be formalised, that the material which has been generated by the micro-credential could be offered to a validating authority and you could say to them, would you like to write a new unit of your existing qualification which absorbs these skills? In which case it's lifted out of the micro-credential area and is put into the formal qualification process. But validation has to be very careful and it's time consuming and it can take two or three years to get a new unit. Okay, Anastasia, let me take you to um, how micro-credentials fit in with vocational education and training, initial and continuing vet. At CEDEFOP, uh, actually our research focus was on that area, on vocational education and training and labour market related education and training. Because we realised that back in 2020, when we started, that a lot of discourse and a lot of discussion were mainly focusing on higher education. This phenomenon is related, let's say, or surrounding the discussions about CIVET, continuous vocational education and training. IVET, initial vocational education and training, still has to, let's say, cope with this phenomenon. And we also observed that micro in different member states have become a feature, let's say, of their evolving CVET systems, while they have also come to play in a very important role in regulation, compliance and construction. So the majority of learners see them as a way of acquiring these new labor market relevant skills on top of their qualification, which of course can be of use in their job and career promotion. What we also saw is that this provision of micro-credentials in vocational training is very diverse particularly because they are very close links to labor market and industry context. So it may be quite complex, I would say, to allow for even to have, let's say, the big picture or to make, let's say, important statements or even compare the situation and what is happening in different countries in Europe, because, uh, as I said, the, the provision is very diverse. Paul, let me take you to the future of micro-credentials. Would you say that they're likely to expand as an educational offer to be sought after more and recognized more by the labor market? Yes, I think micro-credentials, they're, they're a relatively recent thing and it shows that there is an economic and civil need for them. Um, I think there are two big drivers. Uh, one is that the economy is dynamic. The idea of a job for life is pretty redundant and people are going to need to move jobs and careers uh, and that means that, uh, that, that there will need to be employment-focused training at several stages in their lives, not all of which needs to be formal. The other thing is that um, the, the, the workforce in Europe, and even more so around the world, is woefully underskilled, and that people's life chances are going to be improved if they acquire more skills. Now, in an ideal world, those further skills will be through the formal qualification system because it's had a proper validation process and is recognised by august institutions such as CDFOP. But we know that the formal qualification system is slow, 
It's often run by people who are at some distance from industry uh, and the advantage of micro-credentials is that it's close to employment and often it's delivered or they are delivered by people who are actively working in that area and have the credibility of having a day job which is using those skills. So I think they fill a necessary gap in the market between formal qualifications which are slow to respond because it's important that the formal qualification is properly reviewed and validated. There's the need for validation on the one hand, but there's the need for currency on the other, and micro-credentials provide that immediate currency that with a micro-credential, someone is, is able to move straight into paid employment. Anastasia, does this all mean that there is no room for state policy, national policy, or supranational policy, EU, for instance? I would say national policies need to be quite activated, actually, especially because of what Paul said. Because we need to understand that micro-credentials cannot be treated, let's say, in isolation. They are very much linked to the evolving qualification landscapes. When we discuss national context and national policies, we realize that there are different, let's say, uh, measures, different policy discussions that European countries are actually being engaged in. Quite often, these uh, different discussions and are remaining uh, at the initial stage, but there are cases where they are becoming more advanced, and these are, in essence, stimulated by current or completed reforms in the country that would aim, for example, to allow wider opportunities in terms of learning pathways for their citizens. We have very good examples in Europe coming from Estonia, from Spain, from Slovakia, but there are also cases where they are even more advanced and try introducing uh, legal documents and different arrangements in order really to discuss this topic from a very serious angle and point of view. However, there is a lot of diversity. Countries in Europe are very different. They have different cultures, different historical pathways, uh, different trajectories, if I may. So I think in that sense, uh, micro-credentials need to be placed within this broader context of the national specificity and what is important for a country, really, and what are the priorities. Could I just add to that? Because I think um, Anastasia's put the position very, very precisely. The European Union prides itself on the free movement of labour. There is no free movement of labour if your qualifications are not recognised by employers in the new country. Within Europe, you have a, a more structured approach to micro-credentials because it's important that someone can move from Spain to France and still be employable. In Africa, where uh, there is much less formality with micro-credentials, it's absolutely vital that if someone switches from one country to another, they have some register of the skills that they've got that can be recognised in that new country. So globally, um, micro-credentials are going to facilitate the movement of labour from one country to another, um, which is important in the dynamic economic circumstances in which we find ourselves. And what would you say, Paul, are the main impediments if micro-credentials are to be made the best of by societies and economies around the world? Well, uh, national legislation, uh, um, th there's a great problem in Latin America of snobbery, uh, really, around formal qualifications. So that in some countries in Latin America, you are not allowed to teach unless you have a degree. That means that the person that's doing the teaching often has no direct experience 
of the workplace and therefore they lose credibility. And it is quite possible that national regimes will discourage micro-credentials because they want to prop up a formal academic structure which is not helpful to their economies. So it is important that nations are receptive to the notion of micro-credentials and don't put down legislative barriers preventing their use. CEDEFOP has run a long-term project over the uh, last few years researching micro-credentials. What would you say the main benefits of that project were, Paul? Oh, in- increasing the understanding of it. Your employers are nervous ab- about uh, qualifications and they sometimes don't have the confidence to design a curriculum and therefore the more that CDFOP researches it, publishes it and reassures employers that they're not treading on so dangerous terrain in offering a micro-credential. So yes, I, I, I welcome the work that CDFOP has done on disseminating an awareness of micro-credentials. I can only hope that this continues in countries outside of the European Union, like, for example, the United Kingdom. Anastasia, what would be the next step of research on micro-credentials? I understand it is quite likely that CEDEFOP will continue its research on the subject with a new project. But generally speaking, that future uh, research should concentrate on which aspects? There are different issues we need to consider, different perspectives and parameters we really need to think about. But I can say for sure quality assurance is a very important element and quality assurance is something that when it is lacking, then there are different issues we need to consider on micro-credentials, especially if we are reflecting on the labor market aspect of it. Then in this effort to develop quality criteria, I guess a first step would really to go into a national perspective, to a national process, and to see what is actually happening and how, for example, these nationally, let's say, based criteria could act as an important foundation upon which different providers and programs would be built on. Another important element that I think is very worth reflecting on is mainly this focus on learning outcomes. Learning outcomes is a very important uh, approach. It can be considered actually the oil behind this machine that needs to get on working. And last but not least, I think this important aspect of what we also consider at the European level, transversal skills and competencies. Uh, This is a very important work that we started already researching two years ago. These are, let's say, the main areas we would like to work on. Paul, one final thought from you, if you'd like a soundbite, perhaps. Learning outcomes are a way of describing skills. And we need to understand what skills are. To give you one example, employers often say, we need maths. Well, what do they mean by maths? Do they mean geometry? Do they mean trigonometry? Do they mean algebra? Normally, they mean arithmetic. Employers have to be encouraged by the language of learning outcomes to be very specific in what they say and what they want, rather than just generally, we want good qualifications. Be precise about the skill. Thank you both very much for being with us. It was delightful having you here and discussing what seems to be a topic very much discussed in recent years. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. And Anastasia. Thank you very much. That was CEDEFOP expert Anastasia Pouliou and Paul Granger, 
an honorary research associate at University College London. We'll be back with more on vocational education and training, skills and qualifications. Until then, you can listen to our podcasts on our website, sedefop.europa.eu and all major podcast platforms and follow us on social media. For now, goodbye.